It's a great privilege to be with all of you men this morning to talk about biblical manhood. I want us to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Paul tells the church in Corinth, the men in Corinth, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now the church in Corinth, according to the words of Paul, was a very blessed church. They were full of spiritual gifts, and there was great demonstration of spiritual power, but there were also many, many problems. And every one of those problems can be traced back to a lack of character, a lack of conformity to Christ, a lack of conformity to Christ's revelation through the scriptures. Now, first of all, I want you to look here in verse 13. He says something very important. He says, act like men. Now, there is a lot of truth in this verse. The mere fact that he says act like men means there's a difference between men and women. Now, why is that important? Because we live in a culture today that is trying to destroy every difference between men and women. We live in a culture that hates God. And therefore, it seeks to attack and destroy everything God has established. And Let me give you an example of what our culture is like. Let's go to the book of Isaiah for a moment. Chapter 3. This is what happens when God judges a nation or God judges a culture. Verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. God will often judge a culture by removing its prosperity. Whether we want to recognize it or not, the economy of the world is balancing on the head of a pin. It wouldn't take much to bring the economies of all the world completely to nothing. Look at verse 2. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. What he does when he judges a culture is he removes all the noble, wise, and valiant men from the culture. So he takes away the valiant and the wise men. And what does he put in their place? Verse 4. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. Now, I don't know about your culture, but I know about mine. We look at the leaders of our country and we think, what are they doing? Do they purposely want to destroy the nation? Because almost every decision they make takes us farther and farther down into destruction. And look what it says in verse 12. O oh my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O oh my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. This is what kind of culture we live in today. Where is the valiant man in culture? Where is the valiant, godly man in government? Where is the valiant and godly man in the church who will fight against culture, even though they hate him? And where is the valiant and godly man in the family? Now look in, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. He tells the men to be on the alert against all the things that would do damage to their soul, against all the things that would do damage to their family, and against all the things that would do damage to the people of God, the church. So part of what it means to act like a man is to constantly be on the alert because we are in a spiritual war that is more deadly than anything going on in Afghanistan. 
And we as men have been called to stand watch, to stand guard, because there is an enemy, the devil, who is like a roaring lion, and he is seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you, your wife, your children, your church, all of Christianity. He wants to devour everything that is noble and good. He wants to devour everything that has been ordained by God. And you are called to stand against him for the sake of many people. Do you do this? Do you stand on alert? Are you watching over your own soul with great care? I have a dear friend who was preaching a sermon a while back and he said something very powerful. He said so many Christian men today are talking about passion, about having great passion for Christ. He said we, meet, we need men who talk about caution, about being very cautious for Christ. Now what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that men become passive and afraid. But that we realize that there is a war going on and it is dangerous. And every day men are falling and wives are falling and children are falling and, ch and churches are falling. And it's because we're not cautious. We don't realize we're in a war. We don't realize there's an enemy out there who wants our destruction. So he says, be on the alert. A true Christian man watches over his heart. He makes sure that wicked things do not enter in them. And he feeds his heart with the word of God so that it will be strong. He guards his mind so that lies and, and wrong visions do not enter in. He guards the way that he is walking because he knows people are watching him. He knows the devil is watching him and looking for an opportunity to get him in the way. For this reason, Paul says that we need to walk circumspectly. We need to walk cautiously, making careful decisions, decisions based upon the word of God. Our wives are watching us and they will learn our good habits and our bad ones. Our children are watching us and they will learn our good habits and our bad ones. I watched a film a few months ago about a world famous samurai sword maker. He is the greatest sword maker in the world. And he only takes one disciple to train. And this is what he said. My disciple must be better than me at making swords before I die. So that this art of sword making will keep getting better. But if my disciple is not quite as good as me, and then his disciple is not quite as good as him. In time, everything will be lost. And that's the way we as men need to look at it. In discipling our wives and our children. In discipling other young men in the church. It must be our passion to leave behind people who are greater than we are. We must be on the alert. We do that through studying God's word. We do that through guarding our hearts. And we most certainly do that through prayer. Go to hold your place and just go to Ephesians for a moment. Go to chapter six. Now, if you notice in, in chapter 16, verse 13 of first Corinthians, he says, be strong. And then look in verse 10 of chapter six of Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There is a great need for men to be strong, not necessarily with muscles. But strong in God's strength in order to fight the good fight against impossible odds. Now, I'm going to, as I'm teaching, I'm going to kind of go off onto some side subjects that I would like to address more fully, but simply do not have the time. Your wife needs you to be strong and your children need you to be strong. You do not have the luxury of being weak. 
Every day, even while I'm here in Holland, I'm dealing with problems all over the world. I'm dealing with attacks against my person. Many things that will just turn my world upside down. I don't have the luxury of going home and showing my family that I'm scared and worried because those are not burdens that my wife or children were designed to bear. Sometimes I sit in my driveway in the car before I go in the house. I'm stressed. I'm nervous about the problems that are going on. I'm worried about things, but all that has to stay in that car. I cannot carry that into my house. I remember one time there was a lady with three children and her husband left her for another woman. It was a terrible thing and she fell into horrible depression. She wasn't taking care of her children. She wasn't preparing food. She was paralyzed with depression. And different women from the church went over to talk to her, but no one could do anything with her. And my wife went over there one day. She walked in the bedroom. She looked at the lady. She said, get up right now. You do not have the luxury of being depressed. You've got children who need food. They depend on you. So put away your depression. Get up and get to work. Their whole life has been shattered and they need to see strength in you. The lady got up. That's what I would say to you. I know life as a man is difficult, but we're called to be strong. And there are some problems we share with no one in our family because we're the one called to bear it. And if we share everything, every problem with our wife and our children, you will find they will be, they will be nervous and insecure. Your family has to be the one place where your wife and your children find security and safety. Now you and I can't do this in our own power. So we must stand strong in the Lord's strength. And how do we do that? Well, I've just got to go back to the same thing over and over again. Through abiding in His Word and abiding in prayer. And through developing strong friendships with other men who can be like iron sharpening iron. And in verse 11 it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Sometimes when we're deer hunting with a rifle, we use a scope on the rifle. Because we're going to make a shot many, many yards away, many meters away. And in that scope, there are crosshairs. And you look through those crosshairs and you try to put them right on the heart and lungs of that animal. When I'm doing that, sometimes I think about that animal. He has no idea what's about to happen to him. I've got him in my crosshairs. In one second, he's going to be dead. And he doesn't even know it. The snipers in the army... There is a new record that has been set by one of the snipers, I think from Canada. He shot a man at nearly two meters, at nearly two kilometers. That man never knew what happened to him. He was just walking along carrying a bucket. And in one second, without even hearing a noise, he's dead. Now that's terrifying to think that you could be in someone's crosshairs and you don't even know it. And they're about ready to pull the trigger. Well, that's what it's saying here. If you are a Christian man, the devil is scheming against you. He's looking for a way to take you down. And you must be strong and you must be cautious. He not only wants to take you down, he wants to take your wife down. And he especially wants to take your children down. Are you standing alert? Are you watching over yourself and your family? Are you watching over your church? Because that's what men do. And then he says in verse 12, for, we, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Sometimes I'll hear young 
young men who've been called into the ministry talk about how they're going to fight the devil. And I pull them aside and I look them in the face. I say, you don't have a clue what you're talking. Just by the way you say that, I know something about you. You've never looked down the throat of evil. You have no idea what's waiting out there for you. Something so evil, it could destroy you in a millisecond. It opens up its mouth and the very pit of hell is revealed. It has no pity, it has no mercy, it only wants your absolute destruction. And if it wasn't for the strong shepherd standing over you, the thing would eat you alive. That's what wants your family. And it's not flesh and blood. It's demonic, it's satanic, and you cannot fight it as a carnal man. But only through the word of God and prayer and a godly sacrificial life can you overcome this thing. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now there is a sense in which every day is evil, but he seems to be talking about a specific day. And, and I... I I know that throughout my Christian life that we must that I must deal daily with temptation. But there have been certain days and certain times in my life when the attack was tremendous. So the devil will be attacking you with small things every day, but he's also got plans. He's planning a full out attack on you and on your family. He's planning it in which he will draw together all his forces and come at you at once. This type of attack can come at several, come several different times in the life of a godly man. And what does the Bible say? You had better be ready. And you are not going to get ready by just sitting there and reading the Bible five minutes a day. You are not going to be ready by sitting down and watching the television set all the time. You are not going to be ready by being on the internet and playing with Facebook. These kinds of things just make you soft. And you are not going to be ready if you're chasing money more than you're chasing God. There are days that are going to come when the devil is going to seek to rip you to pieces. So you had better start training now. Getting ready now. It says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And basically, after you have done everything possible, then stand. It's like a fighter who's preparing for a big fight. He uses every moment of his day to prepare for that fight. He only eats that which will make him able to win that fight. That's the way we must be, constantly training. Constantly prepared to respond to war at the drop of a hat. I got to bed last night around one o'clock. I had to get up this morning early. My flesh did not want to get out of bed. And you say, yes, you had to prepare for a sermon. That's not why I got up. That is not why I got out of bed. I had to prepare me for whatever was going to come at me today. Before I walked in here to do the children's sermon, I downloaded emails. And I got one that hit me right between the eyes. It staggered me. It showed me there's terrible problems in a certain part of the world that we have to deal with. So I was in scripture and prayer this morning because I knew that a battle would come to me today. And it's having prayed and read through the book of Psalms that enables me to leave here and go deal with that problem as soon as I'm finished preaching. There's a lot of guys who say, I want to stand. But do you do everything necessary in order to stand? And then he says in verse 14, stand firm, therefore. Now look at the repetition in verse 13. Having done everything, stand firm. And then 14, stand firm. You think he's trying to tell us something? He's telling us to stand firm. Having girded your loins with truth. Now what does that mean? 
Roman soldiers and many other types of soldiers often wore long tunics. They keep you warm, but they're no good in a fight because they'll tangle around your legs and cause you to trip. So you gather up all the loose ends of that tunic and you tie it with a belt so that you're free to run and fight. That belt that we have is the truth. If you do not know the truth, you will stumble and fall. If you don't know the truth, you won't be able to run. And if you don't study the Bible, you won't know the truth. So again, central to being a man of God is the word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I believe there's two things here. One is the recognition of our righteousness before God in the person of Christ. We must always have as our sure foundation that we are the righteousness of God, not because of what we do, but in Christ and his perfect work. But the Bible doesn't talk about positional righteousness without talking about personal righteousness. We are to be righteous men and to wear righteousness like a breastplate. As a matter of fact, these very things that are mentioned here are worn by the Messiah when he fights the wars of God. And the breastplate was an incredibly important piece of armor. If I'm going to fight a really big guy, I mean a really big guy. Now here's what I can do. <laughs> Probably the first place I'm going to try to hit when he holds his arm up is right here in his in his bicep. Okay. Because if I can hit him there really hard a couple of times, he's going to lose that arm for at least 30 seconds. But the only reason I'm hitting him here is because I can't hit him here. He's too big. He's too good a fighter. If I could hit him here, I'd probably win the fight, but I can't. So I'm going to hit him here. But that just takes away one arm. He can still use his head, his other arm, and his two legs to beat me to death. So I've got to take out all of those. And that takes a long time. I wish I could hit him here. Because if I could get him here, I'd win. Same way with the devil. He's going right for the heart. If he can get your heart, he's got all of you. A breastplate of righteousness. That you stand firm against his lies about you in the righteousness of Christ. And you are a righteous man. Righteous men are bold as a lion, the Bible says. But wicked men run even when there's no one chasing them. It's just like a politician who's done something very corrupt. And he's, he's trying to hide it. He can no longer attack corruption in other politicians. Because he knows they'll expose his corruption. Only a righteous man can stand against unrighteous men. We must wear this righteousness. From where does it come? Again, I hate to be redundant, but it's from renewing your mind in the word of God and living a life of prayer. And then he says in verse 15, he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Now, there are different ways of looking at this passage. Some people think it is referring to the shoes or the boots that were wore by the Romans when they were fighting in a field. They wore boots with nails in them. Because I don't know if you've ever been in a fight in the middle of a field, but it gets really slippery. And no matter how big you are, if I can take out your legs and knock you down, I've got an advantage. David in the book of Psalms often talks about how God planted his feet in wide places so that he could stand firm. And so some people think that a correct understanding of the gospel gives you a solid foundation so you can stand and fight. And I do think that's a possibility. But I lean more towards another interpretation. That it's talking about the swiftness of our feet in carrying the gospel and doing the gospel work. 
A man is so busy about the work of the gospel that he doesn't have time to be distracted. He's focused on one thing, that God's kingdom will come, that God's will will be done. And he knows that that happens through the proclamation of the gospel and living it out. I know that as men in this world today, we're busy about a lot of things. But are you mostly busy with regard to the spread of the gospel in your own heart? Are you busy in making sure the gospel spreads abroad in the heart of your wife? Are you busy in the gospel ministry with regard to your children? And are you busy in the gospel ministry with regard to your friends and co-workers and at your job? Now, if, if you work at a job that isn't the ministry, I know that it's difficult. I know that it's time-consuming. I know you have important responsibilities and burdens. But in the midst of all that, we are to be about the gospel ministry, looking for every opportunity to share Christ. And when we come home to our house, it's not to rest. It is to continue on with the gospel ministry among our family. Now, he says also in verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to distinguish, to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is absolutely impossible unless you know the promises of God. And it's absolutely impossible to know the promises of God unless you study God's word. Now, the Roman army was probably the most disciplined army the world has ever known. And if you were holding your formation in battle and you begin to scatter out of fear, you could be court-martialed or killed. Because the Roman army, they all use their shields and lock them together to turn themselves into something like a tank. If you had 50 Roman soldiers, the ones in the center held their shields up to completely cover the entire group of 50. The men on the front, back, and the sides, they held their shields up so that nothing could come at them from the sides, front, or back. And they would march just like a tank into the, into the enemy. But it is recorded in the annals of warfare that when the enemy would start shooting flaming arrows, it was so terrifying that sometimes Roman legions broke ranks. It was terrifying. Now, how does this apply to the Christian life? First of all, as an individual man, the devil shoots a flaming arrow at me. What is that flaming arrow? It's a lie. A lie. He is a murderer. But how does he murder? The way he did from the very beginning. He lies. He shoots an arrow at me. God does not love you and has left you. I raise up the shield of faith against that. What does that mean? Romans 8. Nothing and no one can separate me from the love of God. The shield of faith. And faith is only faith if it is based upon the promises of God. Again, I must know the word of God and stand with the word of God against the lies of the enemy. A man is all depressed because his life isn't turning out the way he wants it to. He's 42 years old and he realizes things probably aren't going to get much better. He's a Christian man, but he's wore out and weak because he doesn't study the word of God. The devil tells him, you're 42, you've got one last chance left. Leave your wife and go out and have a good time. The shield of faith is through the scripture to point out that's a lie and not submit. So let's talk about the shield of faith as a community. Remember how those Roman soldiers would, would lock shields and totally protect an entire group of soldiers that's the purpose of the church I see a brother who is who is worn out and knocked down he may not even be able to have the strength to lift up his shield I need to be watching 
Watching for him. Standing guard. Praying that God will give him strength. Standing beside him. And hopefully other brothers standing beside him. So that if any flaming arrow comes toward him, we can block it. We can be there for him in his time of need. Just like when the great warrior David was knocked down as an older man. And another younger soldier had to deliver him. Do you stand in the gap for your family? Do you do it for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's go on. He says in verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the helmet of salvation. If I can hit you in the head with an axe, I win the fight. Game over. You have an axe in your head. So you want to cover that head. You want to cover that brain. Have you ever looked at some of the helmets that warriors have worn? I mean, they're very goofy looking. Strange, weird. You know, because most of them are pointed. And you think, the guy looks like he's an alien or something. (laughs) I mean, this guy doesn't scare me. makes me want to laugh. I can't even hold my sword up. Well, there's a reason why it's like this. Because all the guys who had helmets on that were like this, they got an axe in their head. (laughs) Because if the top of your helmet is square and I come down on it with an axe, the full force of that axe is going to hit you right between the... Right in the head. And even if it doesn't go through that helmet, you're going to think you're not even going to be able to do anything. But if you got a helmet with a point on it like this, comes straight down on your head, and my axe goes like this. I hit you horizontally, my axe goes like that. It's pretty smart. Helmets are important. Very important. Because this brain is important. Satan attack your brain, he's one. He gets in your head, he's one. You start believing lies and you'll die. We need to have a helmet on. The helmet is of God's salvation, which includes everything that God is, everything that he's done already on our behalf, and everything he will do until that final day. Standing firm in that. And then we come to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the word for sword here refers to a Roman short sword. It's not the great long sword that you would use if you were running into an army. It's the short sword you would pull out if you were in hand to hand combat and you grabbed the guy like this. And you stabbed it. It. It, was also, it was also your last defense when you lost your big sword and your shield and you're standing there with only a knife. Now, people think of this, they'll. Um, well, there's many distortions about this passage. Many charismatics say, you know, speak the word and it will be so. That's not what this means. But many evangelicals and reform guys say that when you're being tempted, you need to quote scripture at the devil. Because that's what Jesus did in Matthew 4. Well, no, not really. You're not understanding Matthew 4. Jesus didn't defeat the devil because every time the devil tempted him, he quoted scripture at him. Jesus defeated the devil because every time the devil tempted him, Jesus obeyed the scripture he quoted. Do you see the difference? You quote scripture at the devil all day. Uh, He knows it better than you. You overcome not just by quoting scripture, but by obeying the scripture. So you should renew your mind in the word of God so that you not only have an answer, you give a perfect or you give a proper response. Now look at verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, 
Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. He says, be on the alert. And how do we do that? I think there's two things that are very important. To be on the alert, you have to be discerning. You have to have a really good eye. When I go hunting sometimes, I hunt with a friend of mine by the name of Darren. We're out there and there's not much light. It's early in the morning. It's difficult to see. The deer blend in with their surroundings. And sometimes we're sitting up in a tree looking over long distances. And my friend Darren has the most incredible eyesight in that his ability to distinguish between colors is phenomenal. And there have been many times when he said to me, look at that deer. And I'm looking in the very same place and I can't see it. And I'll say, where? He said, don't you see that little piece of white that's sticking out behind that tree? It's 200 meters away. He can't see the deer, but he can see a little bit of white that he knows doesn't belong to that tree. And needless to say, he kills a lot more deer than I do. I'm just lucky I don't hunt bear all the time. I'd probably be eaten. <laughs> My brother Kevin is the same way. He says, look at that deer. And I'm like, I don't see it. He has to grab my head and go, look, right there. It can be the same way spiritually. That because you're not renewing your mind in the Word of God, you can't discern differences. You don't see shadows. And it gets closer and closer, and you do not recognize it. I know Christian men who have so little discernment that they invite evil into their house and they don't even know they're doing it. And then they wonder why their entire household falls apart. Another thing about being alert is, is the fact that you have determined to stand watch. You pray. You pray for yourself. You pray for your wife and your children. You pray for your church. When you see, for example, a character flaw beginning to show itself in one of your children, you're looking and you pray. When you see something, maybe a little bit of disunity with you and your wife, you notice it. And even though it's very small, you know it is a seed that could grow into something very large. You're watching over your family. Now that doesn't mean you're standing over your family and constantly ordering them with regard to a lot of things. Most of the time I'm standing watch, no one even knows it. And I do not spend all my day lecturing my family, but talking to God, watching in prayer. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Boy, that's a good verse. It's what we need today. We need men, real strong men. But the scriptures are so wise that when we read verse 13, we think about strength. And many times we define strength according to the Roman Empire. I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to lay down the law. I'm going to enforce things in my home. And we end up destroying our families with legalism. And instead of being servant leaders, we become un unloving kings, dictators. But look what verse 14 says. God knows how to correct us and make sure we don't go off on an extreme. Let all that you do be done in love. Strength dressed in love. A man should not be like a mouse 
In some ways, he should be like a charging war horse. But with a bit in his mouth, and that bit is love. He has the power of a charging war horse. He can be as violent and dangerous as a bear, but he's controlled by love. He's controlled by love. This type of message is very important today. Because like no other time in history, the devil is working to destroy masculinity, to domesticate men. Isn't it amazing that if a woman leads today, the media applauds. If a woman asserts her leadership, the media applauds. But if man, a man asserts his leadership, he's criticized, he's made fun of, he's mocked. He's considered a brainless Neanderthal. Don't submit to that. People have often pointed to Deborah in the Old Testament as a, as a great woman who led the nation of Israel. And she was a great woman who led the nation of Israel. And to some degree, we have to acknowledge that the sovereignty of God raised her up. But I believe it is clear he raised her up as a sign of judgment, as a rebuke against all the men who were too weak to lead. And I think that's what we're seeing today. Where are the godly men? who are going to lead. That's the great call of the day. But remember this, it all starts with the word of God and prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that it will work in my heart and in the heart of my brothers to bring about your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. The question is that before you spoke also about the ministry of a husband to his wife and that he should wash her uh, through the word that she she may become clean but mm -hmm. can you be a little bit more specific about how you do that sure great question um, just turn with me for a second to the book of Deuteronomy now here it's talking about the teaching of children but there is a wider principle he says in chapter 6, verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. First of all, we must realize that... Um, Ministering the word in our home is, does not just mean having a Bible study with our wife and children, but no. it means to create an environment of the word of God in our entire home and in everything we do. That's what I believe Joshua meant when he says, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. So let's look at kind of the, the order of this. In verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So the father and the husband must be a man who is saturated by the word of God. And his thinking and his doing are controlled by the word of God. Modern man has kind of divided up his life into departments. I mean, if you look at the medical profession, which I praise God for the medical profession, but it used to be that a, a doctor was a doctor of everything, general medicine. Now there's very specific compartments so that a doctor who's an expert in one thing may not know anything in another discipline. Our lives are also 
cut up in departments with regard to time. Right. And, and this has affected our Christianity. We get up in the morning, maybe we study a, a chapter or two of Scripture, then we kind of put the Bible aside, we kind of check off, I did my quiet time, and now we go do other things. And that's not right. And see, this is something you can't fabricate if it's not real in you. You must be a man who thinks much about the Word of God and orders his life according to that Word. So that you create an environment of spirituality of the Word of God in your home. Um, my boys and I spend, you know, uh, some time in the, in the woods and in the wilderness. Sometimes we'll sit for hours in a tree waiting on a deer. We'll talk about God. Or my boys are both learning uh, wrestling and fighting. So I'll get down there and wrestle with them. And then when I pin one of them to the floor, I go, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. <laughs> and if you think I can pin you to the ground, just imagine what the devil can do. I mean, it's just that the whole life needs to be a conversation around the Lord and his goodness and his joy. So that's the first part. Is that you're meditating on the word and the word just kind of is an environment of your home. Then, though, I believe that there are specific times that you ought to have in order to teach the word. Um, our family meets once a night in the, in the evening, once a day in the evening, and we have a family fellowship. And um, we study uh, the book of Proverbs and then another book. Right now we're in Luke. So I'll, I'll look at a few verses in Proverbs and then a few verses in Luke. And we go verse by verse. My boys have, are now on their third time through the book of Proverbs with me, line by line, exposition. And we've done several books of the New Testament and the Old Testament. My wife is there participating. And so it's a family devotion. But then there's also need at times to meet with children individually. If you see a certain sin that begins to grab a hold of the child. One of my children, his sin is that he's kind of the center of attention in his own mind. He's a natural born leader. And so he tries to push everyone into his way of thinking. And so I have to deal with that sin specifically. Not trying to crush him, but to mold that gift. My other son is passive, just follows his brother. And so I need to deal with him on a different way. And then also with your wife. There needs to be times when you meet over the scripture and the kids aren't there. And it, it's probably not going to be every day, but a couple of times a week. And, and the best thing to do is to take a book of the Bible, you know, like I think uh, the Ephesians or, or Colossians. And maybe you read a, a portion of that text and then you discuss it. You talk about it. With my children, I discuss the word, but there's a lot more lecture on my part. Because they're children and they need to be instructed. But my wife is not a child. She's my equal. So we converse over the word. I feel like this is commanded in scripture. It's not an option. But you want to be very careful. Uh, your religion in your house should not start and stop with your Bible study because the kids will see hypocrisy and they'll see Christianity as something you turn on and turn off. Also, I'm very careful about time. Um, if we get into a Bible study and, and it's just kind of, you know, not a whole lot is happening. It's, it's good, but it's just a normal Bible study. It's going to be no more than 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes with my boys. But then sometimes something special happens and it, it may go for 45 minutes but it's because something's really happening and they're really spurred on to do it. And don't turn it into just legalistic, boring lecture. 
Um, so those are some of the things that we do. When that child is able to understand language, they begin, they begin real Bible study. And even before they understand language, they are still capable of learning. So, I mean, I was sharing the gospel with my, with my children when they were in their mom's womb and praying for them. Um, as they came out as an infant, you can already start training a baby. You pick them up from the crib when they genuinely are scared. You don't pick them up every time they cry because they're learning to manipulate you. When they're little toddlers, you can teach them to sit in the family devotion and not make a noise. And the same in the church. We don't send our children away when church starts. If there's a theological lecture going on in the church, those children are seated there. And they learn to sit quietly and they learn to listen. Uh, with my children, before they could write, I would tell them, I want you to draw a picture of something that you understood in this sermon. So that, you know, we can have, for example, um, we had special meetings a couple of weeks ago in our church. The sermons lasted probably an average of an hour and 45 minutes, just the sermon. And our children of our church sat there and they listened. We do not believe in a generation gap. And we think that the segregation of children is also a worldly idea. Children's, children's church, youth groups, things like that, we don't buy into. So when, when we have our Bible study at home, that is our opportunity to train our, our little children for church. Because we can teach them, discipline them, and everything right in our family so that when we take them in public, they know how to act. Now, with, with a baby or, or with, a, uh, with a toddler who's just beginning to be able to respond to commands and seeing pictures, this no. is what I do. I take the simplest children's Bible that I can find, preferably one that just has a few lines on each page, has good pictures, and preferably one that rhymes because it is so much easier for a child to get involved when it rhymes. That's why it was so much easier to memorize uh, the Bible in Hebrew because it has a rhythm to it. And then in reading the Bible with my child, I'm very animated. And that really helps. I use different voices, different accents, and it's a time that they really enjoy. If I go through that simplest Bible twice, then I, I go to another Bible that's a little bit more, a little bit more mature. I still try to find one that rhymes, and we go through it. And then another one, and pretty soon they're reading the New Testament and the Old Testament in the same Bible that you use. Ian has just finished, um, well, I think he finishes this week having gone through all the scriptures and read them himself and gone through them, the entire Bible. Now, he's read the New Testament many times, different books of the New Testament, no. but now he's gone through the whole Bible. Evan is in, um, he's in Isaiah right now, Evan, my nine-year-old, and, and you teach them. For example, I was seated this morning looking at the scriptures, and Evan got up first, and without even looking at me, he went over to the table, picked his Bible up, and then he said, hello, Dad, and then walked over and started reading the scriptures. 
knows that's what you do the first thing in the morning. I, I do not believe he has become a Christian. But these are things that you train and they just accept it as this is the way of life. But you have to begin it very early. Some say that a child's character is formed by the time it is six years old. Most parents start no instruction most parents do not start instruction or discipline until a child is much older than that. So their character is already shaped in rebellion. Also, you've got to realize that each child is different. Ian, my first son, is a real reader. I mean, he has read so many books. My other son, Evan, he just wants to be in special forces and go to war. That's all he wants no, to do. And I tell him, you've got to be able to read to do that. So they're all different. You've got to treat them different. Um, this brother is wondering how um, uh, you as a family uh, use your time in general um, and also if the things that you share with us are not closely related to the fact that you give your children homeschooling. Okay. Well, first of all, whether your children go to a public school or go are homeschooled, the scripture studies, it's the same. Now, the second question was, how do we, how do we use our time? Well, I am a very busy person, as I'm sure that you are. What I have discovered as a man is that you lose time in little increments. Like, for example, if, if um, when I go to the office to work, I'm going to get to the office early and I'm going to work. If everyone wants to go to lunch, all the guys, that's fine. But I'm usually not going to go. Because I'm trying to cut out everything in my life that takes away from my family. Because I realize that that, that is my calling right now. There will be a time when my children leave the home and my wife and I will have more free time. But right now I'm called to raise a family. And so here's some of the things I do. I try to get up early and get to work early so that I can be home. So that... I work out four times a week, really hard work out, exercise. Now you say, why do you do that? Because it enables me to, to work from five in the morning until 11 or 12 at night, that's why. You say, well, the Apostle Paul didn't do exercises. You're right, he walked 25 miles a day. And I have found that in order to maintain a rigid schedule, I need to work out. I need to eat right. Because I want to live as long as I can, as healthy as I can. Every once in a while I go crazy and eat a hamburger with Kevin. But then our wives find out and beat us and we don't do it again for at least another two months. And then when I get home from work, this is what I do. Now, this is just my house, okay? My, my boys are homeschooled. We also do not live on a farm anymore. I will not have boys with soft hands. So they do Olympic lifting to get calluses on their hands. I make them work out until they feel like I can't go on anymore. They do, they do karate, karate twice a week. They, so I'm raising boys. I'm not raising girls. There's got to be some toughness to them. So I invest in that. Now, when we do our workouts, and this is going to seem really funny. I don't know if you've seen my little daughter. She loves to work out. So she lifts weights with us. And it is hilarious. Because she's learned how to make the noises. When she's bench pressing, she goes, and then, and then she says, don't take it, Dad. I can do another one. Because see, the father is more important to the daughter than even the mother is. And so she's in on everything. So 
Here, here's some other activities. We, look, we, we live in a place where there are a lot of really nice things for free. So we take advantage of that. There are a lot of forests. There's a, we do kayaking. Just different things like that. Because you need to get your children outside. And not just your boys. You need to get your girls outside. Whether it's taking them to the park to play soccer. They need to be outside. When I do that with my children, it's also uh, relaxing for me. And so if I get home at 6 o'clock, we'll work out, we'll eat, and then we'll have our Bible study, and we'll have time in which we just converse, we talk to one another, and maybe do things together. And then I try to set aside certain days in which we do something all together. We have families in our church that own farms, for example, and, and they, they sell chickens. So take my children up there and we spend the whole day cutting heads off of chickens. <laughs> I mean, they've got to learn these things. You know, and, but uh, now uh, the thing about homeschooling, it does allow us some tremendous privileges. Now it is hard, but it's worth it. I mean, my wife is teaching our children and managing the home. But now that my boys are older, Ian is 11, and he pretty much manages his own studies. He knows what he's supposed to do. And I'll check it. But he pretty much is self-taught now. It's also amazing because he can now help his brother. And then many times I just take both boys to the office with me. And they study there. Right with me. So it's, it's great to have my kids with me. When they get a little older, they'll probably another year for Ian, he'll probably start working at the mission. Now, he won't get paid or anything, but he will carry out tasks. Uh, let me give you an example. Forrest, how old are you? Forrest, Forrest is 18. We have a, uh, a donors program. Um, what would you call it? A database program that is really, really big. I mean, it, it takes something to run this database. Forrest started coming to the mission probably when he was around 16 or something. Now he runs the entire database and the data program and everything for HeartCry. And the way his mother and father taught him, I'm sure he could have run the whole thing when he was 14. And so, you know, we, we try to bring our children into our, like my children would normally be in school, but they're able to come to Holland, England, Italy, Peru, and they learn so much just by doing that. And so homeschooling is a way of life that changes absolutely everything. I don't make a lot of money. Any man that makes the amount of money I do in the United States, his wife would be working full time too. And my wife does not work because she's pouring her life into our children. And, and yeah, we, we can't buy a nice car or anything like that. I don't care. My car is disposable. If it breaks down, I'll just leave it on the side of the road and walk home. <laughs> we had to make these kinds of decisions. And, and they're wonderful. And my children understand why we live the way we live. But God is so gracious to provide so many things that money can't buy. Please visit our website at heartcrymissionary.com. There you will find information about the ministry, our purpose, beliefs and methodologies, and extensive information about the missionaries we are privileged to serve.